Luke chapter 5, 33. If you have a Bible, flip on over to Luke chapter 5. 33 will be in verses 33 through 39 this morning. A little shorter chunk than we've been biting off throughout this series. But we have it uh, for us today to to dig into. I'm real excited about this. Uh, We have Bibles for you if you need one. Uh, We have it up on the screen. And so make sure to get on over there. Uh, It's a very, very important passage for us to grapple with. And uh, so while you're flipping over there, uh, just to kind of set us up this morning, I want to ask you guys a question, if I can. Here's the question. I want you to answer it. Maybe start to bullet some things out in your mind. Here's, Here's the question. The question is, what are some actions that people today would identify as evidences of spirituality? What are some actions that people would identify as evidences of a spiritual person, or evidences of uh, religious vitality. And I'm sure you're, you're starting to kind of identify some things in your mind. Let me think out loud, and uh, let me just share some things that I've identified. I, I think one of them that people today would identify as evidences of spiritual vitality or spirituality is humanitarianism. If you're spiritual, if you're religiously vital, uh, humanitarianism comes to mind, I think, for many people. This person is committed to feeding the poor, clothing uh, the poor. We wear Tom's shoes, for crying out loud, right? Uh, We kind of have this humanitarian spirit. We go on these trips. And maybe we would say that's that's an evidence of of religious vitality. How about charity? Some people say charity, yeah? You give to specific causes or you you, you volunteer for specific causes. Causes, maybe that's a sign of religious vitality. Maybe kindness. Some people would say, you know, people who are really awakened spiritually, they're, they're thriving in their faith. They, they're, they're kind. They're extraordinarily just gracious and loving and, and, and kind. Now, many people would say um, faithful to their church or their religious institution. In our world, people would say that that's a sign of religious uh, vitality. When a person is committed to their church, they're, they're, they're there frequently, well beyond holidays and communion, first communion or, or, or baptism. This would be a sign of, of somebody who's got religious vitality. Or, or maybe inside of the church, for, for those who would say, I'm a Christian, maybe some things that we would say as Christians, we know what the world says, we would say a sign of religious vitality is someone who's in some kind of spiritual leadership, some kind of ministerial leadership. Or maybe someone who, in worship, they're so bold as to raise their hands and, and sing in, in worship. Or, or maybe a sign is, is they know their Bible really well. Or maybe it's the, the way they, they pray. They're just eloquent when they pray. They, they know how to talk to God. They know how to talk about God in a way that seems meaningful. These are things of, of, of evidences that speak to religious vitality. Or maybe it's just, just a good person all around good person you look at their lives and they're just they're good that's a sign perhaps of of spirituality and i'm assuming assuming that that some of these things are things that you two have identified these are descriptors in your mind of 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 religious vitality but here's my next question my next question is would it be possible for a person who does not describe themselves as spiritual for these things to be evidences of their life or descriptors of their lives. They'd say, you know what, I'm not spiritual. Religious vitality certainly does not describe me. 
But could these things be true of them? Well, of course they could, right? I mean, you think about it. A self-proclaimed non-religious person could also be a humanitarian. Absolutely. A person who gives to charity doesn't necessarily have to be a spiritual person. You know, inside of the, the church, there are many faithful people. They're very faithful to their church. And they're here frequently, but feel spiritually dead inside. Maybe that describes you. There, there are people who have even, history tells us, held roles of leadership inside of churches, but have been publicly exposed to be frauds, spiritually bankrupt. Raising your hands doesn't even necessarily mean that you're, you're thriving in your faith. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, parents, you can probably relate to this, where I've looked over and my, my toddlers are raising their hands in worship because they're copying mom and dad, but they're not necessarily saved by the grace of Jesus, right? They haven't placed saving faith in, in, in Jesus. And so here's the conclusion. The, the conclusion is that these actions that we've identified cannot be a sure sign of spiritual life of religious vitality. In fact, someone who has a, a, a seemingly polished spiritual life might actually be dead inside. A person who, who seems to be thriving in their religious activity might actually not be thriving at all. In, in fact, Matthew chapter 22, verse 27, Jesus says it this way. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness so needless to say that these religious leaders did not take that as a compliment why why, thank you jesus wow you're just really stroking my pride right now that was a slam at the end of his ministry to the religious leaders of that day and today, what we're going to see is we, we just see Jesus when he just starts warming up. I mean, he's just getting started here with these religious leaders. We've been taking a good long look throughout the, light, the, the, the past few months as a church at the life and the ministry and the message of Jesus. We've so far seen much of his early life through Christmas. We saw his childhood uh, years. We, we've seen a lot of his ministry, the healing, the casting out of demons. He's, he's building his team, appointing disciples. And, and today, we're going to see one of the distinctives of his mes- message. What, what really, one of the things that makes his message very distinct in uh, today's day and age. And one of the, the greatest distinctives of the message of Jesus Christ, of, of Christianity, is inner transformation. Of, of inner changed not simply this outward transformation wow they're different they're they're polished up they're looking really good i mean people anybody really if they wanted to could muster up outward change they could start going to church being devoted they could raise their hands they could uh, look spiritual and they could do those kinds of things but inside kind of be a, a dirty old soul and the people that we read about in today's passage in the original context this passage We'll address those Pharisees. It'll address those scribes, the religious leaders of the day who looked really good on the outside, but on the inside, they were just a a bag of bones. And so let's read uh, Luke chapter 5, 33. Luke chapter 5, 33. It says this. And they said to him, 
The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, eat and drink. And, and so this is an accusation that comes to Jesus at this point in his ministry. And who does this accusation come from? If you look, it says, and they. Who are they? If you look up to verse 30, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite of the day. And what particularly are they complaining about? They're complaining about fasting. They're complaining about abstaining from food out of devotion to, to God. And fasting in the Bible is always connected to what? It's always connected to, to prayer. And so biblical fasting, the kind of fasting that we see in the scripture, is when someone has this tremendous burden that is so heavy that they abstain from eating in order to devote themselves more fully to prayer, to plead to the Lord on behalf of this burden. Now, this may surprise you, but as we read through the scriptures, there's only one fast that is commanded in the scriptures. It's for the Jewish people in the Old Testament. We are connected to Judaism because Christianity fulfills Judaism. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. We believe that uh, Jewish people today have missed him. But Christianity fulfills Judaism. And for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, there's only one fast that is required. It's Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16, the day of atonement. A day that you look at your own sin, you repent of your sin, and they would offer a sacrifice unto the Lord, pleading for his forgiveness, that their sins would pass into the sacrifice and the people would be, would be cleansed. And Yom Kippur is the one prescribed fast in the scriptures. Now we read through the scriptures and we see all kinds of described fasts. You, you know the difference? Prescribed versus described. Prescribed, this is what you need to do. This is a fast, a day unto the Lord. And then described, these are times that people fasted. Uh, we see one day fast. We see three day fast. We see three week fast. We see uh, three month fast. We see uh, or, or 40 day fast. We see all these fasts in the, the scripture, but only one was actually prescribed. And so it wouldn't necessarily be sin if you did not fast on all these other days. It wouldn't necessarily be a sin. However, what the Pharisees and the scribes decided to do is add additional legislation to the law of God. They would add to what God said. And that was the practice of these guys. They just kept piling rule upon rule, regulation upon regulation upon regulation, tradition upon tradition, holding them on the people of God so that if you didn't do these things, you were in sin, even though that's not what the scriptures say. They would judge people based on their commands, not God's commands. And they tried to pull this here on Jesus, God in the flesh, and he's not having it. And so what they say is, um, Jesus, our disciples pray and they fast often. And, and you know your buddy John, his disciples, they pray and fast often. But Jesus, what's up with your disciples? Why aren't they fasting often? Now notice when, when Jesus responds to them, as we're going to see in a little while here, he doesn't talk about praying at all because you cannot accuse God's people here of not praying. I mean, Jesus was regularly, as we've already seen throughout this book, regularly going to a desolate place to pray. Later he'll teach them to pray. 
He's, he, he's, he's praying. Regular prayer life is a part of being a believer. That is commanded. You cannot miss that. Pray without ceasing. That's in the scriptures. But he does address the, the eating and the drinking thing. If you look at it carefully, it almost appears as though they kind of know that, eh, you know, Jesus' disciples, they're, they're praying, but they're certainly not fasting. At the end of verse 33, but Jesus, your disciples, they eat and they drink. They eat and they drink. And so Jesus' disciples, they prayed, but they were eating and drinking and they were enjoying themselves and these religious people did not like it. See, the religious people decided that it would be seen as spiritual if they were fasting and praying often. And they were doing it in such a way that people could see them. It was this outward thing that they would do. And they thought, that would, that, that's spiritual. That would appear very religious. And so we'll do it often. In fact, history tells us that they did it twice a week. They fasted twice a week. On Monday and on Thursday. And they loved to do it in a way where people knew about it. And so I, I remember this awesome passage that I wish we could study in depth. Maybe we will another time. But in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus speaks specifically to these kinds of people. And listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. I'll paraphrase a little bit. He, he says one thing. He says, when you give to the needy, one of those things we've identified as that would be maybe a mark of religious vitality. He says, when you give to the needy, don't sound the trumpet. You know that's something that they would actually do? They would sound the trumpet. Dun, 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 dun. Watch me give. Can you, can you believe that? And then the cisterns that they dropped the money and had this trumpet shape kind of head to it. And so they would drop many coins in and it would just go ching, 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 ching. It would sound like Vegas. And people would go, whoa. That's why when the widow drops her little coins in, ding, ding, nobody cared. But Jesus did. He says, these types of people, they, they sound the, the, the trumpet, Right? It's kind of like a, a modern celebrity who would uh, gain press exposure when they gave. Or they would go to a charity event and have this ridiculous spread of food, right? Jesus says, when you get the attention from other people, you have your reward. It's not an eternal reward. You get the eyes of other people on you. If that's what you want, that's what you get. But there's no eternal reward there. He goes on, though. He says, and when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites. He keeps calling the religious elite hypocrites. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. Can you imagine? I mean, that's, he was so bold in this. He said, because they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and on the street corner that they may be seen by others. And so they had kind of created these rote prayer regiments that they would engage in. And, and when it was time to pray, they wouldn't go into a prayer closet Many of them, unlike Daniel, who went up into his chamber to pray, they step out in the streets and start to pray out loud where people could see them and, and hear them. And again, he says, well, they have their reward. They're seen by men. If that's what they want, that's what they get. There's no eternal reward for that. There's no eternal reward for that. He goes on. He says, and when you fast, here's, here we go, fasting. He says, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. So when they fasted, they disfigured their faces. They would throw on a frown. Like, mm, life is awful. Right? They would throw on a, uh, on a frown. They would literally wear rags 
And they would actually take dirt and ashes and cover themselves with dirt and ashes. They'd step outside and just look miserable. <laughs> so the people would say, wow, you are so spiritual. Every Monday and Thursday, you just, you just pleading with the Lord. And Jesus says, are you kidding me? Take a shower. What are you talking about? Anoint your head or put product in your hair, for crying out loud. Spray on some axe or something. You want people to see you? There's your reward, he says. But, but there's no reward with me for that. This whole religious show is ridiculous. Christians, today, let's please, please be modest about the things that we do. We are only out to glorify the Lord. We are not out to bring attention to ourselves and to glorify ourselves. That is not our goal at all. He says, this is ridiculous. Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, some of you know it. These people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He says, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine or Bible the commandments of men. Heard that verse before? Let's make up these rules, pile them on top of the Bible, and let's just make this this heavy burden that God did not give. Externals can be very deceiving, can't they? So when I was in, uh, I think it was 13 or 14, I decided I was going to be a skater. <laughs> I thought that would be cool, and it lasted for a few months. And so I started to dress like a skater. And I had baggy Jinko jeans. Some of you guys remember those? And long hair shaved up underneath. It looked ridiculous. And like these graphic, edgy kind of tees. There's one problem. I never owned a skateboard. <laughs> On the outside, the external <laughs> could be really deceiving. Right? And Jesus says, you're a bunch of hypocrites to these guys. You're like whitewashed tombs. You, you, your gravestone is nice and clean, but inwardly, just bones. That's what's going on in, in your, your heart. And you're going to hold other people to your empty traditions as though they're commandments of God. Poor people can't afford all these things that you have to get in order to be kosher Rules that weren't even, some of these weren't even in the Bible. Multiple spoons and this and that. He says, are you kidding me? You're just oppressing people with your man-made doctrine. It's not in the scriptures. Jesus was not about to let them get off judging his disciples based on their faulty, man-made, external gauge of spirituality. So, you know, I want to ask you guys a question. Let's, let's shift it back to us for a minute here, and then we'll get back into the text. What are some of your man-made gauges for spirituality? What are some things that you would say, you know, this, this is spiritual. This makes me look right. I think this would be right with the Lord. And you need to hold it up against the scriptures. We addressed many at the beginning. Not bad things. But they don't necessarily say, yep, you're, you're solid. You're right with the Lord. Maybe you've identified some more. But perhaps you've become comfortable with your spirituality because you say, you know, I, I go to church. I'm there all the time. But if you were to do an honest assessment of your heart, maybe you're dead. Maybe you're not really thriving at all. As you read through the New Testament, one thing that you cannot miss 
is that while the Pharisees kept pointing to the external, Jesus said, forget that. Let's talk about your heart. I've never committed adultery. Have you looked lustfully at a woman? He says, you've already committed adultery. I've never murdered. You murder people in your heart all the time, don't you? See, Jesus kept going back to the heart. My question for us is, how is your heart? We have to be honest with ourselves. How is our heart? Stop fooling yourself. God, how is my heart? Is a prayer that we should pray often with King David. Search my heart, O God. Search my heart. Show me if there's any wicked way within me. Lead me into the way everlasting. Now, I want to address something here that, that you may have caught. What about John's disciples here, right? They brought it up, and so we should bring it up. What about, what about John's disciples? The Pharisees said, you know, John's disciples, they're, they're fasting as well. And aren't you and John on the same team, Jesus? Yeah, we are. John is the forerunner, right? He's the one who's come as prophesied in the Old Testament. He's like this blinking arrow. Jesus, he's coming, he's coming, he's right here. And then when he comes, what does John do? He tells his disciples, okay, you can leave. Go over here with Jesus, right? And now John is in prison. He's about to be beheaded. He was the humble guy who said, you know what? This, this whole thing, I'm building this whole thing. It's not about me. Go over here, follow Jesus. That, that's what John did. It's pretty, pretty incredible. But John's ministry grew so large I mean, and, and very fast. So within months, tons of people had he, he baptized. It was absolutely amazing. But then they, he says, go after Jesus. But there were so many of them that even though he said, go after Jesus, there are many of them who had not heard him say that. They didn't know that that's what they were supposed to do. So much so that as you read through the book of Acts, well after Jesus has died, was buried, resurrected, ascended into heaven, the church has started. You get into Acts chapter 19 and Paul and his team in Ephesus come across some disciples of John. Wait, what, disciples of John? What are you talking about? John said, follow Jesus. You should be disciples of Jesus. And so they, they teach them about Jesus who they'd never even heard of. And then they start to follow Jesus. And so here even now in Luke 5, of course, it's, it's not long after John said, go follow Jesus. And we still have some people following John. Saying, we're disciples of John, but John's in prison. They're, well, we, we went and we were baptized by John. And, and so they naturally want to honor God. And so they have good intentions. But they see these Pharisees who are saying, here's how you honor God. Here's what you do. You do what we do. You pray and fast. And you fast twice a week. And you do it in such a way. You stand out and people will see you. It's a wonderful, great thing. And so they're joining the Pharisees, right? And they ask Jesus, Hey, Jesus, we're with the Pharisees. We're wondering why, why aren't your disciples fasting? Why are they eating and, and drinking? Now, one thing we, we cannot forget is that this comes off of what we looked at last week, and that is Matthew, the tax collector, being appointed a disciple of Jesus. He will be an apostle of Jesus. So if you look ahead in verses 22 through 32, Matthew or, or Levi He's this Jewish tax collector. He's collecting money for the opposition, right? He's a chump. He's a sellout. He's collecting money for the Romans. And he's in his tax tax booth as a tax collector. And Jesus sees him. And he comes up and he says, hey, I want you to follow me. And it's amazing what Levi does, what Matthew does. 
He just immediately says, okay. <laughs> it's so cool. I love that. It's just like, hey, no arguing. Like, what does that look like? Can you give me a little more detail? What's the job description? No, he's just like, you, me? Okay, let's do it. Because he knew he was just an idiot. He knew that he had been a sellout. He knew that he had no friends of his uh, relatives and people he grew up with because they all abandoned him because he is a tax collector for the enemy. It was quite an amazing honor. So considering how sinful he had been, he's stealing from his own people. When Jesus says, follow me, he says, okay. And he says, this is amazing. I got to throw a party. And you know the story. He throws a party for Jesus. If you look in the the text just above where we're at right now, he throws his party and it says that there's this large number of the dirty, rotten tax collectors all around him and other sinful people. You can imagine the bottom of the barrel people in that society. They're all there having this party because Matthew couldn't associate with other people. Nobody wanted to hang out with Matthew, with Levi. And so he has this party. And of course, who's there? Jesus. It's for Jesus. And Jesus' disciples, who also dropped everything, the other four at least, who've already said, we're, we're with you, Jesus. And they're hanging out, and they're eating, and they're drinking with Jesus and all these sinful people. And if you remember there, the Pharisees spoke up. You remember that? They spoke up. They didn't like Jesus hanging out with these unholy people. And so that instance is two of three conflicts we've already had in the, 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 the Gospel of Luke so far. The first conflict, Pastor Ryan covered with the paralyzed man. Remember that? And he comes down from the ceiling. He's paralyzed. And the obvious thing that he was looking for was for his legs to get fixed. But the first thing that Jesus said is, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> well, that's actually not what I was here for. Um, you picture the disciples being like, Jesus, look at his legs. That's what he's here for. <laughs> right? He says, no, your, your sins, that's, the big, the big deal. And the Pharisees flip out. Who are you that you think you can forgive sins? Only God can do that. And he goes, mm-hmm. God, see my name tag? Right? The second right here is conflict with the Pharisees. This instance, wait, wait a second. Wait a second. You can't hang out with these unholy people. And remember what he says? He says, I'm a doctor, and the doctor needs to be around sick people. And so if you're so well, you're so religious, you're so good, well then go your own way. I'm here for the people who realize they're sin sick and they need me. And then the third is where we're at today, where they're upset about Jesus' disciples not fasting. Do you see the connection with where we're at today and the conflict today and the story with Matthew, with Levi? What were they doing? They were eating and they were drinking. They were enjoying a, a, a party. One question that I'd love to ask Jesus, because I got all eternity when I'm going to be with him, and you too, hopefully. One question I want to ask him at some point, it probably won't be my first question, but I want to say, hey, that party that Matthew threw, was that Monday or Thursday, perhaps? You ever thought about that? Perhaps they were so upset because it's our fast day. Did you look at us, see what we're wearing, and you're having a party right now? Are you kidding me, Jesus? And Jesus says, no, are you kidding me? Are you serious right now? My scripture does not command that. And they don't fast. They enjoy themselves. And they did not like it. And what is Jesus' response to them? We've spent our time so far just looking at 
the accusation that they put on Jesus. Let's, let's move into his response. Look at verses 34 and 35. Here's what he says. And Jesus said to them, Can you make a wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. So this is the first time in the scripture that we get the well-known illustration where Jesus is the groom and his people, the church, is the bride. The Apostle Paul will expound upon that in Ephesians chapter 5. If you were married a Christian wedding, probably the the pastor covered Ephesians chapter 5 at some point, right? What's Jesus' illustration? There's a wedding. He says, imagine if you were at a wedding and they said, okay, it's going to be a good wedding, but nobody's eating and nobody's drinking. Now, I know some dads who are like, that would be good. This is an occasion to fast. My daughter is getting married to this chump over here. But Jesus says, that would be crazy, right? You don't fast when the groom is here. That would be foolishness at a wedding celebration. He's saying, I am the groom. My people, the church, that's my bride. And we're here together. We celebrate. We, we, we celebrate. And then he kind of throws this side point here, verse 35. He says, the day is coming when I will be taken away. I'll be snatched away. And then they will fast. He's speaking about Easter weekend. He's speaking about his death on the cross, his burial. He says, of course, that, yeah, then they're, they're going to they're gonna fast. So is it never appropriate to fast as a Christian? Of course not. There are instances like that where you were burdened, you were heavy-hearted. Know that your pastors pray and fast for you often. There are occasions that it is appropriate to fast along with your prayers. And then eventually you're going to break fast, which is where we get the word breakfast. So when you have your Pop-Tarts this morning, you were breaking your sleep and your fast that you didn't eat, unless you're really gifted and you can sleep and eat at the same time. He says, listen, when the bride and the groom are together, we party. We celebrate. And so, the response that they have to Levi's party is they are ticked. And they're still wrestling with it. And Jesus says, it is completely appropriate that we party right now. It is completely appropriate that we are full of joy right now. I am your long-awaited Messiah and you have missed me. You're fasting while I'm here with you? You're acting gloomy while I'm here with you right now? We celebrate. That is the appropriate response. I'll say it again. Here, the the Pharisees are doing what they perceive to be spiritual. And Jesus is not affirming their actions. And they are ripped about it. Listen. Jesus wasn't about to just slide up in their system. That's not how it was going to work. He was here to replace their system. And some of you might say, well, wait a second. I know the Bible. And uh, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? Yeah, that's true. He came to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. He did not come to fulfill their little recreation that they made their little religious system that they made religiosity he did not come to 
fulfill that. Jesus came to replace your religiosity. You understand that? He came to replace your religiosity. Jesus came to put an end to your attempts that are futile to try to please and appease God. How did he do it? He did it by God coming to earth, taking on human flesh and living the life that we've all tried to live. We've all tried to live good, live well, live righteous, and we all screw up big time. He comes, he does it perfectly, undeserving of the wages of sin, which is death. Yet he dies, as we're going to celebrate and focus our eyes on, on Good Friday. And he dies on a cross. That's when he'll be suddenly snatched away from the wedding party. We celebrate this morning. Every Sunday we worship on Sunday and not Saturday anymore because Sunday is the day of the resurrection. And so we are celebrating the resurrection today. But Good Friday he's snatched away. And we talk about Yom Kippur. He was the the perfect atonement. He was that ultimate, final sacrifice. God died for you. Just this past uh, Yom Kippur, I I was sitting at a coffee shop in Brookline, very Jewish community. And I was doing some work. And my heart was just broken looking out the window. All the people decked out. Heart's just broken. They, They missed it. Jesus did it once and for all so that you could live in freedom. You don't have to live your life seeking to be religious. When somebody says, you're so religious, say, no, I'm not. <laughs> Actually, religious is man, religion is man's attempt to buy back God's favor, to be good enough for God. I'm not good enough. Jesus was good enough. It's the truth that we call the gospel, the good news. Isn't that good news? That you don't have to spend your effort throughout your entire life just trying to be good enough and hoping that you're good enough. He says, no, you can know that you're not good enough, but that Jesus is good enough. And you can know that you know that you know that you're right with God because you have placed faith in Jesus, not in your hopes that you're, you're good enough. I always pose the question, how good is good enough? How many of the sacraments do you have to partake of? How many times do you have to go to church? How many times do you have to pray? How many times do you have to raise your hand? How many times do you have to fast to be confident that you've been good enough for God? And God says, no, Jesus was good enough. If you will place faith in what he has done, you can be made right. And out of that, you start to live a life of humanitarianism and prayer and joy and kindness and graciousness and charity. We get it backwards all the time. Every faith system in one way or another is about earning God's favor. And Christianity frees you from that. You can just know it was his sacrifice and nothing else. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We live in a culture of pluralism. Can't we all be right? Doesn't that seem fair? We live in a culture of universalism. Is that how it worked on your SATs? Like every answer is okay. I'd be at Harvard right now, right? It's not how it works. They just write something down. There's no wrong answer. Can't we all be correct? Isn't it cruel for God to say, no, you can't all be correct? 
No. I think it's incredibly gracious of God to say, let me make it crystal clear. It's just Jesus. That's it. Jesus. I am the way. You don't have to spend your time finding, pursuing. He says it's right here. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. The burden is on us to bring the message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. What about people in other countries, Josh? Well, get your butt to that other country. Stop building bigger barns, bigger houses, luxury cars. Let's put our money towards expanding the kingdom globally, right? That's what we're to be all about. It's not cruel. It's gracious of God to say there is one way. There is one way. It is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. So Jesus says, listen, you cannot just slide me into your religious system. I replace your religiosity. The gospel of Jesus must replace your religiosity. For these Pharisees, they wanted Jesus to come on in. We're cool with you, Jesus, if you just affirm us and what we're already doing. Though the Old Testament was all about the centrality of God in all things and the glory of God, they made it about the centrality of me. Watch how well I do what God told me to do, and some other things that I think would be helpful as well. They made it about themselves. They wanted Jesus to affirm them. They were completely arrogant. See how religion creates self-righteous, arrogant people? I've heard people use that complaint to me sometimes. You know, I'm not religious. I'm like, yeah, me either. They're like, you know, religion just breeds self-righteousness and arrogance. And I'm like, I know, right? And they're like, wait, wait, you said you're a pastor? I said, I know, right? Because if you think you can be good and you can earn God's favor and you can please God and you're holy and you're trying to live right, it makes you start to feel like I'm holy and I'm living right. And you can look down your nose at other people. But the gospel breeds humble, selfless people who say, man, I was so sinful and yet God in his goodness and God in his grace saved me. You see the difference? So Jesus is kind of ripped because these self-righteous, arrogant people are looking down on his humble disciples who are fishermen, dirty tax collector. And you look at the crew, the posse that he gathers to change the world and it leaves you scratching your head. And you don't say, wow, they, those guys are awesome. You say, that Jesus is awesome. If he could t- take that, that bunch of rotten people and, and change them and change the world. It's amazing. That's how it works. That's how it works. So Jesus closes. He closes our, our two-week look at everything that kind of happened around Matthew's house and that confrontation. He closes with three illustrations. I think these are really cool. Look at verses 36, and we'll read the, all the way through 39. It says, and he told them a parable. So Jesus says, okay, let's talk about something right now. Here's a parable, a few of them. He says, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. All right, three illustrations. Let's, let's go through them quickly. First illustration is this. It's about clothing. <laughs> Anybody uh, ever shrunk some clothes? 
So every now and again, I'll try to be a good husband. And uh, there's been a few times where I thought I'd be helpful and do some laundry. And my wife is folding the laundry because that's the part, that's where I stop right there. I just, my folding is like wadded up into a ball. And she says, just give me that. That's my tactic with cooking, by the way, too. I fumble around the kitchen. I'm like, uh, let me just help you. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. And then she cooks for me. It's awesome. But um, with laundry, there's a few times I thought it would help. And I, she's folding and I shrunk her shirt, her favorite sweater. I, it happens all the time. It's, it's pretty bad, right? So I'm going to leave Jesus with the garment talk. And here's what he says. He says, if you have a hole and a piece of garment, some clothing that you wear, you can't take a new piece of fabric and sew it onto that hole for two reasons. First of all, the new piece has not been shrunk like the other one. And so when it gets in that hole and it shrinks, what's going to happen? It's going to tear away from the old garment that's already been shrunk. So that doesn't work. The second thing he says is it's not going to match anyhow. Because right? the old one's been faded, and then this one is nice and, and crisp. He's saying, listen, you cannot patch the gospel into any other form of religiosity. And you can't say, let's have this with some Jesus on top. Let's have both. Let's patch them together. You can't make a quilt work religion. It does not work. Man, talking about calling us out in Boston, huh? You can't do that. It's either Jesus, as Jesus says, or nothing else. It's either Jesus or nothing else. You can't have both. He says it's painful. You try to stitch them together and it just doesn't work and the people are just bobbling around confused. It doesn't work. It's confusing. It's, it's, it's frustrating and it's eternally useless. They don't match. It doesn't work like that. Second illustration he gives is, is wine. So, so back then what would happen before uh, we started bottling our wine. Wine was uh, put into animal skins, right? And, and what you would do is you would take the wine before it was fermented and you would put it into uh, an animal skin. So for example, a common one was they would take a goat and they would take the skin of the goat and they'd leave it intact and they would take the, the, the four legs and they would tie them up together and then the neck would be like the, the spout and it made this perfect sack and they would put the wine in but it was important for the skin to be new, to be soft, to be supple, right? Because as the wine fermented and gases are released, the skin would need to expand a little bit. And so what would happen if you put new wine that has not yet fermented into an old wineskin that's brittle? As the gases are released, what would happen? The, the wineskin would just crack, it would burst. And again, Jesus is saying you cannot mix the old with the new. Numerous times Jesus will say things in the scriptures like, I'm doing a new thing, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. A new hope, a new life. It's new. Cannot mix the old and the new. These two systems cannot contain the gospel. The result is brokenness or tearing away, as he's already said. Now here's the third and final illustration. Very simple, and I think this one's really powerful for me personally. The sad reality, verse 39, he says, And no one, after drinking the old wine, desires the new. For he says, the old is good. Or some translations will say, eh, the old is good enough. Like, I like what I've been drinking. So here's the truth of the gospel. It is like the new wine. It's this amazing, 
stuff. New process. It's incredible. It's the best tasting reality imaginable. We call it the gospel. But for many, they have this old wine, this old way. And they want to hang on to that. And maybe it's out of tradition. There's comfort in tradition, isn't there? You guys know that. Family traditions around Christmas. I just love, it's just comfortable. I love that. Good old days. Maybe it's fear of the unknown. I don't know what I'm stepping into with this whole thing. We call that faith. Not that it's a blind leap of faith, but there are some elements where you just got to trust God, right? And maybe it's a personal pride thing. Maybe it's, you know what? This is how I have always done it. Do not tell me that I am wrong, that my mom was wrong, my dad was wrong, my grandma was wrong. This is how we have always done it. We could go on and on and on and on and on as to why people like the old wine and don't want to give the new wine a shot. But I I need to close. and I just want to plead with you. You are missing out on something amazing if you don't give your life to Jesus and drink of the new wine. The gospel is freeing. There is nothing, nothing, nothing like the freedom of knowing that Jesus has done for you what you could not do. That Jesus has done it all. That the price is paid once and for all and you can live in freedom, not in fear. You can know that he loves you, period. But what if I do this, that he loves you, period. He loves you, period. If you've trusted in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I gotta plead with you. Please give your life to Jesus. Turn from sin and turn to him. Stop trying to be the one who pays the price for your sin. Jesus already did it. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, period. If you call upon the name, you say, Jesus, I recognize what you've done. I need you. I trust in you alone. You will be saved from sin and death and death eternally. We call that hell. It's amazing news. One way, crystal clear, there it is for you. Trust in Jesus. Christians, I need to talk to you for a second. Many of you have tasted the new wine. And as Psalm 34 says, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Are you telling people? I have tried the new wine. It is absolutely amazing. You gotta share it. One of the things I love about my father-in-law, Becky's dad, is he is so funny about this, but he, he gets excited about something and then he becomes an evangelist about it. You know what I mean? And so, for example, wine. Let's, let's stick with wine for a minute. Oh my gosh, Josh, I've, this new Cabernet, it's, you gotta have some. He, he just gets excited about it. He's, he'll tell everybody about this new stuff, right? Or he'll find a fishing hole. He's got to bring everybody, everybody's got to experience fishing in that fishing hole. When the sun goes down over here, the fish are biting. It's amazing. You've got to do it. I've had this new restaurant that I went to, I found in the North End. I'm paying my treat. Let's go. He just, he's an evangelist when he gets excited about something. That's what we're supposed to be about the new wine. Have you tried this? Have you given your life to Jesus? He has changed me. He is amazing. That's what we need to be. That's what we need to be. There are so many thoughts out there as to how we train Christians to be evangelists. 
how we train Christians to share their faith. Formulas. I've learned all the formulas on the planet, by the way. All the acronyms, all the tricks, all the boxes, the weird things that, weird things that people do. But you know what? I think if we were just excited about Jesus, we just couldn't help but talk about it. Like three weeks straight after the Super Bowl, I could not stop talking about that final play. I was flipping out about it. I was excited about it. I'm not even much of a football guy. What if you tasted and saw that the Lord is good and you just couldn't help but talk about it? He's amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth that you've given us in your word. So much here to chew on. Thank you, Lord, that your word does not return void. God, I pray that you would just continue to to work this into the fabric of our, our lives. Lord, I know that We are around religiosity often. May we not look angrily at it, but may we look at it with compassion. May we say, God, please move in their hearts. Give them the freedom of the gospel. God, I pray for Christians in this room. where they've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, but they've lost that passion, that zeal, that overflow of, I just got to tell people. Now we'd be like the blind man who Jesus said, okay, the time has not come yet. Please don't tell anybody. And he couldn't help but tell people anyways. Now we just, we can't help but tell people about you because we've tasted and seen. Some of us, Lord, need just a fresh encounter with you in order to overflow again. Would you stir up our hearts, Holy Spirit, as only you can do. God, we commit these things to you. In Jesus' name, amen.